So as I mentioned, I taught a few months ago, it was in Genesis 26, and it was really nice for me to study through this in Genesis 43, because there's a lot of parallels in the material from what was going on in Isaac's life there to what's happening with Joseph, Jacob, and his sons now. We'll get a bit more into that as we continue along. But just in case you haven't been here with us over the past few weeks and months, I'll kind of give you a little perspective as to where we are right now. In the life of the patriarchs, in Genesis in general, there's all these zoom-in, zoom-out periods. Like in Genesis chapter 1, you have the big overarching theme of God and creation. And then chapter 2 focuses in on one segment of that in day 6 as he creates man, and then zooms back out to the table of nations, so on and so forth. So you get to Abraham, zoom in, zoom out. Go to Isaac, zoom in, zoom out, until you get to Jacob and now Joseph. So Jacob is still alive, but Joseph's grandfather Isaac has passed on since this time that Joseph is in Egypt. And where are we, you might be asking. So Egypt, probably Joseph was in the ancient capital of Cairo called Memphis. So that's kind of right there in the Red Star where the Nile River Deltas will join in one spot, very fertile area. And then you have in blue a hard line to see, but that what we would be called later is the Via Maris. It's a road, a major road that the Romans would improve upon to connect those two cities. Where you see Jerusalem or Bethel in the middle of the map on green, or sorry, in green. So this road would be a way that Joseph, or I'm sorry, Joseph's brothers would be able to travel to see him and eventually find food in Egypt, as we learned last week in 42. Again, a very quick review. What is going on here in chapter 43? So there's famine all over the world. It's not just limited to the lands of Egypt or Israel. Ten of the brothers go down to Egypt, of course, minus Benjamin and Joseph, who they think is deceased at this point, to buy grain as directed by their father. Joseph recognizes the brother, but conceals his own identity in order to prepare a test of repentance for them. One of the brothers is taken prisoner instead of all ten, and he's left behind so that they go home and fetch Benjamin. The payment for grain there is found of one of their sacks, and the men are deathly afraid, wondering, how did this happen? This is not going to be good. The sons tell Jacob all that happened in their experience, and Jacob is distraught now at what to do next. And at the end of the chapter, Reuben makes that irrational pledge to his father that I will bring back Benjamin, and if not, you can take my own two sons as collateral damage, which really doesn't help the situation at all. Chapter 43, so where are we going? That's where we were last week. Where are we now? I won't read that whole first paragraph to you, but you can look back on that. And there's these four major sections we're going to be in, primarily in the first 10 verses, where the meat of tonight's message is going to be. So there's still the famine going on. Jacob will eventually relent. Joseph will have more relationship, more of that testing with his brothers. And there will be additional in chapter 44 and even 45 before this part of the story is complete. So if you begin with me in Genesis 43, opening up your Bibles, Genesis 43, verse 1, we'll start with the first 10 verses. It says, Now the famine was severe in the land. And it came to pass, when they had eaten up the grain which they had brought from Egypt, that their father said to them, Go back, buy us a little food. But Judah spoke to him, saying, The man solemnly warned us, saying, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. If you send our brother with us, we will go down and buy you food. But if you will not send him, we will not go down. For the man said to us, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. And Israel said, Why did you deal so wrongfully with me as to tell the man whether you had another brother? 
But they said, the man asked us pointedly about ourselves and our family, saying, is your father still alive? Have you another brother? And we told them according to these words, could we possibly have known that he would say, bring your brother down? Then Judah said to Israel, his father, send the lad with me and we will arise and go and we may live and not die. Both we and you and also our little ones. I myself will be surety for him. From my hand, you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. For if we had not lingered, surely by now we would have returned this second time. So famine, Mike touched a bit upon this last week. What is it? What is famine? Well, physically we know it's an extreme scarcity of food, right? Common to the Old Testament, happened at least a dozen times that we can clearly point to. But it's more than just the physical that's going on here, right? We can clearly see that in the story. There's a spiritual component here. There's a response that is needed from us. And this is driven by God from start to finish. It wasn't an accident. There's not one detail of this story that was left to chance. God is moving the chess pieces, if you will, in a very specific order because he always gets checkmate, amen? Right? He always knows what he wants and how to get there. So the famine, though, is a trial for the brothers, which is easy to see, but you might miss that it's also a trial for Jacob. So how are we, as Christians, how are we supposed to respond to trials? Right? We probably are very quick to think in our heads, James chapter 1, right? Probably have that memorized. You consider it all joy, right? And there's been many teaching in the book of James here in this church and others, so I won't go far into detail on James chapter 1 and what that word means, right? But we understand that Something's different here for the Christian, right? Because the world responds in one way to trial, and that's to get through it or get over it or get around it as fast as they can, but the Christian's called to do something else. Because the key there is in verse four, actually. It's not the joy part, but it's that we be lacking in nothing, perfect and complete. That is God's desire for us as his children, right? And like he says earlier in the Gospels, why would we, he withhold any good thing from you? Right, our earthly parents here know how to feed us, to give our kids toys, right, to have a really big Christmas celebration. How much more will the Father provide for us? Because God wants you to be spiritually full. I love the study of Ephesians that we've been going through on Sunday morning. It's been just a really sweet time for this church body. As one thing stuck to me in chapter one over and over again, that God made the riches of his grace right? I think the richest person in the world right now is Elon Musk. He's worth like $50 billion, maybe even more than that. The guy owns rocket ships, for crying out loud, right? But God's riches are infinitely more than that, right? Exceedingly abundantly, chapter 3 says, more than we can think or ask. And his desire, again, stated in Ephesians 4, is that we would attain, right? Not that you, you get halfway or that you stumble along the way, right, and then and never get up, his desire is that we do attain to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ, being part of his family, being part of the fellowship, knowing him. So through this trial, the Lord is, yes, going to teach Jacob, he's going to teach the brothers how to live a life trusting in him. And I hope for you and I that we will be ready to learn how the Lord is teaching us to live a life trusting him as well. But again, Jacob's not quite there. Neither are we, right? It's this race that we run and that God is working with us and he is so patient and long-suffering to do so. So in this moment with the famine that has gotten more severe from chapter 42, 
he does what seems most natural to us, right? He goes to the grocery store, right? He sends his kids, which I saw this is kind of documentary about four-year-olds going to the store in Japan. Everybody, anybody see that? How many parents are in the room right now, right? So your kids may be four, they may be older. Would you ever send a four-year-old to the grocery store? I don't, I don't think so. Like, I don't want to trust my four-year-old to go to the end of the street to get to the, the mail by themselves, right? Because there's, there's so many things that can happen. But these, these boys are a little bit older at this time, and there's 10 of them traveling together. So there's a little bit more safety there. But he directs them, go back, right? Go back to Egypt because we know that's where the food is, and go buy more grain. Interestingly, we see just how kind of dysfunctional this family is and where Jacob's priorities are and are not because he makes no mention about Simeon. That poor guy's sitting there stewing in jail right now. His family's gone back with the food, and he's in prison. And his dad doesn't say anything about making a rescue plan or go check on him or bring him a gift or a message, let him know I still love him and am praying for him. None of that. He just says, oh, I can't let Benjamin go. I got to make sure I protect this one. This, this is my favorite right here. Okay. And there's no concern that we can see in the text for what might happen to those nine if they go back without Benjamin, right? They don't, again, know that this guy in Egypt who sold them grain is actually their brother and their son. They think of him just as a leader in Egypt. And with that leadership comes authority and power, power of even execution. He's already accused them once of being spies, right? As part of his plan. So if they come back without Benjamin, he said, by the life of Pharaoh, this will be your test, right? So he's, he's saying that if you don't come back a Pharaoh, I promise I'm going to kill you. This is the deal. Either you bring back Benjamin or don't come back because if you do, you're dead. You're done. Jacob doesn't seem to care. So Judah pipes in at this moment. He becomes the spokesperson for the nine who are there. A little bit interesting here because he is not the firstborn son of Jacob. He's the fourth. Reuben, you may remember, previously disqualified himself through adultery, right? He slept with one of his father's concubines. So he's out. Number one's out. Simeon and Levi, two and three, they're guilty of bloodshed as they went to Shechem and Hamor and remember what happened there without going into too much detail, right? So they're one, two, and three off the list, if you will. Number four now comes in, Judah, and puts himself in that position of leadership over the family. And Judah tries to explain this folly to his father, again, reiterating, I have this problem too, unfortunately, um, I don't communicate well with my wife, and she's going to hate me for sharing this story, right, because most wives do when we talk about them. But if my wife doesn't understand something, my first response is just to say it again, right? And then I hope that, okay, maybe the second time it got through, and then the third time, I just say it a little bit louder. I just keep going up in volume until she gets frustrated a little bit, and then I realize, oh, yeah, it's not her, it's me, right? It's me. I got to find a different way to communicate. So Judah's chiming in now and saying, dad, this isn't going to work. It's a long, difficult journey. And we'll even use more resources there to try and get him. It'll still be unfruitful. So we're not even going to waste our time, right? If you don't give us Benjamin, we're not going. Kind of puts his foot down. Interesting here, Joseph's terms to bring Benjamin back with them is another way that Joseph is a type of Christ, does anybody know what a type means or picture, typology of Christ? And by that, I mean that Joseph's words, his actions, his character foreshadows something that Jesus would eventually say, do, or be. Some examples here on the next slide. In Genesis 37, we saw that he, 
Joseph was a shepherd. Well, Jesus is the great shepherd. Parallels there in John chapter 10. They're both loved by their father, small f and big f. They're hated by their brothers. Hated for their words. Sold by Judah. Judah in Greek is Judas. Both falsely accused. Began their ministry at 30 years old. Unrecognized by his people in Genesis 42. If you're interested, you can go online and look. There's actually 60 different ways that a theologian in the 19th century named A.W. Pink recognized through the study in Genesis how Joseph parallels Jesus in these ways. I won't give you all 60 tonight, I promise. Then we're definitely not getting out of here by eight. But in this scenario, Joseph or Jesus says, unless everybody comes, there's no benefit to the nine. There's no benefit to those brothers, the Jewish people in this situation. Because while Jesus was alive, the religious leadership, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Sanhedrin at large, the elite rejected him. And they sealed the faith for the entire nation during his first coming. It happens right around Matthew chapter 12 when they call him Beelzebub, right? And then we have the unpardonable sin. And that whole situation, you see a marked turn in Jesus' ministry that he's no longer going to the masses, if you will. He still loves the individual. There are many people who will come to Christ. And as we know at Pentecost, thousands did after that moment, but the nation at large would not receive their Messiah at his first coming. Thankfully, hope for them was not lost. Luke chapter 13 alludes to this when Jesus says there will be a time when all the nation comes together to declare him as Messiah. So just as Joseph will eventually reveal himself to his brethren when they're all there and together, in the tribulation period, in the last days, Jesus' return an establishment of the millennial kingdom, that thousand-year rule and reign here on earth, will be precipitated by the entirety of all Jews, the Jewish remnant there, seeing him as Messiah, right? And all Israel will be saved, the Bible says. Paul talks about this in great length in Romans chapter 11. If you'd like to turn there with me, Romans chapter 11, verse 25. A few verses easier to see on the screen, but if you'd like to turn there, Romans eleven twenty-five. says, for I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come out of Zion and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins." So when God's purpose for the Gentile church has run its course, the fullness of the Gentiles, the hardening of Israel's heart will be lifted, and God will show them mercy, and all of them will be saved at that time. It doesn't mean they had a special way or a different way than you and I. It just means that all of them will come to faith. They will know the grace, the love, and the mercy of Jesus. And the calamity of tribulation, that seven-year period, like the famine in Joseph's day, that will be the the precursor that drives them to this point where they see Jesus and they cry out to him. Come back to our story in Genesis chapter 43. Again, they don't see all this. They don't see all of what's happening through Joseph. We can look at this in hindsight and just see how finely tuned the scriptures are. And there's thousands of things like this that are just too perfect, that couldn't happen by chance, right? That no person could write this story so deliberately and so detailed, it has to be divinely inspired. So Israel's response in this case is nonsense. 
You know what he does? He bursts out like we all do in our sin, and he blames his kids for his woes. Anybody blamed their kids for stuff before? I've been guilty of doing that. It's like, oh, why'd you put that toy there? I stepped on it, you know, or any other excuse or reasons. And so often we want to, we really enjoy blaming other people because then we don't have to blame ourselves. We blame others for our trials instead of going to the Lord and seeing how he is working in it and through it. Even if others could alleviate our trial to some extent, it doesn't remove our need as Christians to draw near to Jesus because he is patient and he is persistent. And odds are we're going to have to repeat that trial or just one like it or maybe even a little bit worse until we get the lesson, until he gets our attention. Like Jonah, God didn't just give up when he went west, right? He says, I'm out of here. Take me to a boat the complete opposite direction. God brought a, a fish. I listened to a message by Jack Hibbs. Anybody listen to Jack Hibbs? He's great. Many, many years ago, somebody gave me a CD. This is how long ago it was. He wasn't even on, on the bridge or anything. It was a CD through the study of Jonah. And there was a moment where he's talking about looking in the rearview mirror and seeing a great fish hop down the highway to come and get you. And every, literally every time I get in the car, I check my mirror now just to be sure. You know, and say, okay, Lord, am I okay right now? Are things going to be good for me today? I'm driving to work. So maybe you'll start doing that too. Look for that fish. If you see one, you better stop and pray real quick. That's, that's my recommendation to you. Anyway, so what was the sin though? You might still be scratching your head. Like, okay, well, what did Jacob do in this scenario? Why is he kind of at fault, if you will? Well, in a word, favoritism. His preference for the sons of Rachel, Joseph, and Benjamin created this family tension. This has become a recurring theme that we've seen a few times now, as he himself, Jacob, was exalted over Esau, the younger over the older, as was Rachel over Leah, this preference for one over another. Throughout this whole plan Joseph had for his brothers, I wonder if he even realized what God was doing in the life of his father. Did he know how Jacob would be convicted, how he would be conflicted, and how God would work to minister to him as well as to the brothers. So parents, what can we learn here, right? I'm always trying to grow as a father. I'm still new and young at this. My kids are only about eight, five, and five. And there is a temptation sometimes to say, why don't you act like your brother? Or why are you just like your sister in this, right? You kind of compare and contrast your kids and it may be natural to think that one is better looking or smarter, stronger, more athletic, or sometimes more helpful. I have one of my kids, I won't tell you which one, who's super helpful, right? I'll give you a clue. It's not the boy. Definitely, definitely not my son. But one of the girls is great, and she is just so willing, so ready, and so able to assist in every little thing, even before I open my mouth. She's like a third parent. She's great. But sometimes you wonder, now do I favor her because of that? Right, I wonder, since she pays attention and she's a little bit older than the others and she's more able to grasp some things here and here, well, maybe she's more spiritually inclined. Maybe she's more spiritually mature. So I can kind of trust her and put some more responsibility onto her and then exclude the others. I got to be on guard to that. And so I would encourage you as well to be on guard against the attitude that promotes the one child to the exclusion of the others. It's okay to help a kid to grow in their gifting and help them to excel. There's nothing wrong with that, right? Every kid has different strengths and weaknesses. But when you just look at one and you ignore the others, you're in trouble. But even in this outburst that Israel makes, notice something there. That the name for Jacob used here is Israel. 
And you see this often in scripture through the past 10 or so chapters, that along with the move towards obedience, there is a change in the name that's used for this man. When he's working in his flesh, he's working disobediently against God's purposes, he's referred to as Jacob. And when he seems to be moving back center where God wants him to be, he's often referred to as Israel instead. But here we see probably he hit rock bottom in this situation because if he doesn't go back to Egypt, he's going to starve to death. He needs the Lord. He has no other way. Remember, this famine isn't just localized to their location. It's worldwide as far as they know. Egypt is the only place that they can go for deliverance. So Judah steps in. And he declares himself the surety for Benjamin's safety. This is different from what Reuben did. Remember Reuben, he didn't say, take my life. He said, take my kids, right? If something happens, take them. This will be equal. But Judah says, no, take my position, take my honor, which was worth a lot more. He's saying, take my inheritance. Remember now he's the leader of this family. So he's giving up something very significant here. His honor is on the line. Judah would be known later as you'll study as the kingly tribe from which Jesus himself would descend. There's no concern about the money at this point either as they go through this text. And you wonder, could it be that they're finally starting to get what's really important? Not their own lives even, but their brother Simeon in this case, right? And their brother Benjamin and bringing him back and their father. And maybe Jacob's starting to realize, okay, I've been maybe a little unhealthy and my worship of Benjamin. And in verse 10, he says, well, we could have been there and back twice now if you had just let us go in the first place, because this journey would have taken about two weeks in direction. So if we do the, the math, Simeon's been there in jail for the better part of two months now. Again, he's just been left alone wondering, are they ever coming back for me? I wonder what's going to happen next. Let's continue reading in Genesis 43, verse 11. And their father Israel said to them, if it must be so, then do this. Take some of the best fruits of the land in your vessels and carry down a present for the man, a little balm and a little honey, spices and myrrh, pistachio nuts and almonds. Take double money in your hand and take back in your hand the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was an oversight. Take your brother also and arise, go back to the man. And may God Almighty give you mercy before the man that he may release your other brother and Benjamin. If I am bereaved, I am bereaved. So here Israel, Jacob, then relents a bit and he prepares them for the journey like any good father would do. He gives the best products so they don't hold much value on their own. Remember, they're in the middle of the big famine here. They don't need pistachio nuts, right? We eat them as like a little table garnish or sometimes as a dessert for ice cream, a little topping for ice cream, right? This is not meat and flour, eggs and butter stuff that's going to fill you up. These are just little extras. But it's a nice gesture from Jacob as the leader of his family trying to honor Joseph, who is the leader of Egypt as far as he's concerned right now. It's kind of like when somebody invites you over for a birthday party. You're supposed to bring a gift, or you're supposed to kind of give thanks to honor that person since you are the guest, or maybe you stay in their house, maybe you rented a, a beach house, and somebody gave it to you for free for the week type thing. You don't just leave the place trashed. 
You clean up extra nice. You might buy a new candle or a bouquet of flowers, some token to show your appreciation. This is kind of what Jacob is doing here. Hey, thanks for feeding us the first time. Hope you can overlook this little misunderstanding. And he's looking to kind of grease the skids a little bit. Further, the money is doubled to show that the brothers were not spies, that they're not trying to be deceptive, but they're even trying to do the right thing by remitting payment again. How many people even struggle with this? Maybe when uh, you buy something and the store gives you a discount, right? For, for really no reason. This seems to happen to me a lot. I don't know why, but they just might give you, hey, nice shirt. Uh, how, would you like 10% off? And I'm like, Okay, but why? Like, and do you have the authority to do that? That's where I struggle, right? Is this from like new promotion for people wearing yellow shirts that day? Okay, is it just because you wanted to do it because you think that's being nice? Well, that actually causes conflict for me because now I wonder, okay, well, what did their boss say? What does the corporate organization say? What's the rule here to follow? Because I don't want to run afoul of that. But anyway, these boys, these, these sons, these brethren are looking to make sure that that is not considered at all that these guys are completely above reproach. And Jacob's real submission is shown here when he appeals to El Shaddai, or what we would translate as being God Almighty. Israel, Jacob, is declaring God to be sovereign over this entire situation, no matter what might happen in Egypt. Right? He's going to kind of wash his hands of it, so to speak, because the boys are going to leave, and they're going to be gone for an entire month. And Jacob is going to be sitting there kind of frittering away, wondering what's going to happen next, right? Or he can just trust in God and say, you're in control. Which one's more peaceable, right? Which one would you rather do? Trust in the Lord and sit there contently knowing that he is the one who fights our battles? Or would you rather be there kind of listening to the radio and waiting for a new letter and kind of get the play-by-play wondering what's going to happen next? I know where I would rather be. Sometimes easier said than done, though. So he's asking God to show them favor above and beyond his own little pittance of best fruits and money sacks. And he yields to God and whatever the consequences may be. Often these trials, these tests of faith that draw us closer to the Lord than we've ever been before are some of the hardest things that we'll walk to or through in this life. Right? The death of a loved one or maybe the loss of a job or any other hard circumstance, right? If we're, we're standing here on day zero, we can say this all night long. And we believe it, right? There's, there's, no, there's no disconnect there. But our response in the moment really reveals if we love him or we never were with him at all, right? Because if we run away, we're seeking the world, we're showing that we don't trust him, that we don't believe he's God Almighty. We don't believe that he is El Shaddai who can fight every one of our battles, Let's continue in verse 15. So the men that took, so the men took that present, excuse me, and Benjamin, and they took double money in their hand and arose and went down to Egypt, and they stood before Joseph. When Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the steward of his house, take these men to my home and slaughter an animal and make ready, for these men will dine with me at noon. Then the man did as Joseph ordered, and the man brought the men into Joseph's house. Now the men were afraid because they were brought into Joseph's house, and they said, it's because of the money, which was returned in our sacks the first time that we are brought in, so that he may make a case against us and seize us to take us as slaves with our donkeys. When they drew near to the steward of Joseph's house, 
they talked with him at the door of the house and said, oh, sir, and we came indeed down the first time to buy food, but it happened when we came to the encampment that we opened our sacks, and there each man's money was in the mouth of his sack, our money in full weight, so we have brought it back in our hand, and we have brought down other money in our hands to buy food. We do not know who put our money in our sacks, but he, the servant, said, peace, shalom be with you. Do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has given you treasure in your sacks. I had your money. Then he brought Simeon out to them. So the man brought the men into Joseph's house and gave them water, and they washed their feet, and he gave their donkeys feed. Then they made the present ready for Joseph's coming at noon, for they heard that they would eat bread there. So these men are going to Joseph's house, the ten of them, full of guilt and fear. And they say clearly why. It's because of what we did 20 years ago has still haunted us to this day. We can't escape this sin. We can't escape the consequence that comes from it. And now it's coming to them ahead. So they come up with an irrational excuse as to why they're going to Joseph's house thinking this is it. This is where we die. This is where he kills us. But again, Joseph doesn't need any kind of pretext to do that. If he wants to, it could happen immediately. There's no need to wait until noon or to bring him to their house. Joseph is second in line. So again, you can feel this anxiety and this panic, and they go to the first person they see outside Joseph's house, look for anybody who can help plead their case later on, somebody who might stand with them as an ally before Joseph as the sword comes out, so to speak. And the steward replies honestly when he says that God put the money back in their sacks. Certainly, yes, he likely used a human agent to do it. But the entire event, again, from the famine on forward, has been orchestrated and been driven by the Lord. Even Joseph being sold into slavery, right? You guys meant this for ill, but but God meant this for good. And look how many people were saved in that famine over the seven years because of what happened to Joseph. It's likely that Joseph himself paid for the food and put it on his account instead of their own. Kind of sounds familiar like Jesus again, right? As he takes our sin upon himself and wipes us completely clean. We owe nothing. Interestingly, this steward doesn't have a name. Kind of like the servant of Abraham that went out in Genesis chapter 24 to find a bride for Isaac, right? When Rebecca eventually comes back. That steward is nameless. But you can see in that story in this one the marks of how this steward is acting like the Holy Spirit, right, to bring them to Joseph, to kind of lead them to the grace that God brings. We see these parallels again over and over in Scripture as well. Verse 26. And when Joseph came home, they brought him the present which was in their hand into the house and bowed down before him to the earth. Then he asked them about their well-being and said, Is your father well? The old man of whom you spoke, is he still alive? And they answered, your servant, our father, is in good health. He is still alive. And they bowed their heads down and prostrated themselves. Then he lifted his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, and said, is this your younger brother of whom you spoke to me? And he said, God be gracious to you, my son. Verse 30. Now his heart yearned for his brother. So Joseph made haste and sought somewhere to weep. And he went into his chamber and wept there. Then he washed his face and came out, and he restrained himself and said, 
serve the bread. So they set him a place by himself and them by themselves and the Egyptians who ate with him by themselves because the Egyptians could not eat food with the Hebrews for that is an abomination to the Egyptians. And they sat before him the firstborn according to his birthright and the youngest according to his youth. And the men looked in astonishment at one another. Then he took servings to them from before him But Benjamin's serving was five times as much as any of theirs. So they drank and were merry with him. So the brothers again twice bow before Joseph. Again, reiterating the significance of the dream that Joseph had many chapters earlier and the brothers' position in this scenario, that Joseph would have his brothers bow down to him. After some more small talk about Jacob and other things, Benjamin becomes front and center of this story now and actually will continue into chapter 44 next week. And Joseph is overcome by the sight of his brother, his one true blood brother, as he, Benjamin, and Joseph were the direct progeny of both Jacob and Rachel. And he rushes out of the room weeping. Comes back and then Joseph says, serves the food. And they're seated apart from his servants because, again, they're Egyptian, and they know that Joseph is Hebrew. He's not like them. So Joseph sits alone, the servants sit alone, and the servants are going to sit with these other 10 Hebrew men that just came. So he puts them on the side as well, or 11 now, excuse me. The seating arrangement for this is really interesting because if you do the math, you calculate all the positions and combinations you could have had for these brothers. It's a 40 million to one chance that Joseph would get it right. And don't get this picture in mind that, like, Judah was walking with a cane and little Benjamin was still in diapers or something like that, right? It wasn't easy for Joseph to discern this. All the brothers happened from four different mamas, right? So they're all kind of close in age, and it's a real feat, real accomplishment that Joseph is able to do this. But again, he's their brother. Of course he knows, but they don't know that. So the brothers notice this, and they sit there astonished, And then Benjamin's given a portion that is significantly greater than anyone else. Number five in scripture is commonly used as a number of grace. So Benjamin has showed an extra measure of grace. And we might be able to kind of write this off if it was just a little bit more, even double, right? You can say it was an accident. Somebody got a little heavy-handed with the spoon and dumped extra food on Benjamin's plate. But the fact that it was five times greater is noticeable to the brothers, and intentionally so. So why? Why did Joseph give such a large portion to his youngest brother? Why to Benjamin? Just because he's the full brother? No, there's more to it. Again, this whole thing is a test that God has concocted, not Joseph. Joseph, again, is the agent executing the steps along the way, but God is the one who did this to reveal the brother's hearts. Joseph's looking to see if they would still be angered that one is exalted above them and the youngest one, the favorite one, Or would the brothers look at him just the same with eyes of love and adoration as they would for any of the others? Joseph's looking to see if they are truly repentant of their sin or not. And that's why he hasn't revealed himself yet. Imagine if Joseph did that in chapter 42. He's like, hey, my brothers, you're back. I'm alive. I'm Joseph. This is great. Do you think they would honor him? Of course, because he's the most powerful guy in Egypt as far as they're concerned. Right? You would have no test whatsoever. But Joseph continues this on, we'll see, for three chapters because God has a bigger planet at all. And sometimes we don't see that. 
So Joseph, like Jesus, is using his own rejection as an opportunity for reconciliation and redemption, right? That's God's heart all the time. He wants to be reconciled to his people, not to maintain those barriers. He wants to bring us back in. Again, we'll see more of this test unfold over the next few chapters as it comes to a head. So in summary, what do I want to take away from this? I know we, we did a lot in the past 37 minutes. I want to remember that trials are for our benefit. To seek the word. Go back, go back to this book. This has every answer you need in life. Maybe none of you should live in New Jersey or Florida, but it's got everything else. All right, seek him in prayer. Seek him in fellowship. That's one thing I'm really excited for as we kind of reshape Wednesday nights and transition into these home groups that we can build even greater relationships with each other in this church body. I want you to remember that Joseph's actions in these three chapters are in line with what Jesus will do, that Joseph is a type of Christ for his people in the time of tribulation. Again, that God is not done with the Jewish people. He has not rejected them forever. There's still a plan for them. And then I hope that you and I remember that God Almighty, El Shaddai, is in control no matter what happens, no matter what the consequences are. So in close, I'd like to challenge you and challenge me a little bit to be more like Joseph, right? It's easy to say that. And a lot less like Jacob, right? Jacob was worried. He was fearful what might happen to Benjamin. But Joseph was willing to do whatever God showed him to do. Remember in chapter 42 that the brothers languished in jail for three days, and then Joseph changed the terms a little bit of what was going to happen. It doesn't specifically say it, but I believe that's because Joseph was praying, right? I believe he was going back to God and saying, okay, here's the situation now. What do I do next? Where do I go from here? What do I do? And Jacob, on the other hand, is saying, okay, we've got to figure this out. Let's get some more food. Let's double the money. Um, how can long can we make this grain stretch? Do we really have to go back to Egypt? I'm not sending Benjamin. Uh, Right? Totally different responses there. So again, I, I pray that in your life and mine, we'd be so much more like Joseph, seeking after the Lord for every little thing in our life because he is ready, he is able, and he is willing to answer. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the example that we have in the life of Joseph, God. Every detail that you have recorded for us, Lord, for our benefit, that we can look back, we can study just how you move through the lives of your people. How much Joseph has been given, Lord, how much more we have with your Holy Spirit living inside of working in us and through us. God, we thank you for your great and precious promises, Lord, that you never leave us, you never forsake us, you never cast us aside. You're always there, Lord. You're always ready, willing, and able. Lord, we love you, we praise you. We ask you to continue to work us to be more like you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.